Uh, all right, we've been in Genesis for a long time. Uh, we are in the second half of Genesis chapter 12 today. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I preached on Genesis chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel. And uh, we saw there that uh, when mankind was building this edifice towards God, uh, they were doing so to make a name for themselves. It was the height of human arrogance. Uh, you think that there's no hope uh, for creation, but God has a plan. And he calls Abraham at the beginning of chapter 11. And he calls him to leave his family and his homeland and to go to an unknown place where God's going to bless him, where he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And it's really quite remarkable. Abraham immediately leaves all that is familiar to him and he goes to Canaan. When he goes to Canaan, he's setting up various altars. One at Shechem. One at Bethel. And then he ends up in the Negev. He goes from the north of Canaan to the south. And so he's doing exactly what God's told him to do. With no excuses whatsoever. And you think things are uh, on a good trajectory for old Abraham. And then we get uh, to the next episode. Verse 10 of chapter 12, and uh, we'll see some very, <laughs> looks like a totally different person. Uh, should be a great comfort to you and I today. So uh, let's start reading in verse 10. Now, uh, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. They'll let you live. See, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The word of the Lord. So remember, this is coming right on the heels of Abram uh, displaying great faith, of him setting up these altars for worship. And if you think about all that he left behind, he left his family, he left his culture, he left his wealth to follow God's call, it's really quite the sacrifice. You think he'd be rewarded for his faithfulness. Surely God is obligated to reward Abraham for his obedience, right? Doesn't Abraham deserve an old attaboy? Doesn't he deserve a pat on the back? Doesn't he deserve some recognition for his faithfulness? Well, that's not what he gets. You see it in verse 10. Verse 10, you don't see an attaboy, a pat on the back, or a recognition for his faithfulness. You see a famine. And if I were Abraham, I'd be really confused at this juncture. I mean, how is he supposed to interpret this difficulty? What would you tell Abraham about why this famine has come upon him and his family? Would you tell him he didn't do enough? Would you tell him that Maybe he should have set up just one more altar in Canaan, and if he would have done so, maybe the famine wouldn't have occurred. 
Is that what you would tell me? Well, see, part of the reason this passage is here is to answer these kinds of questions. See, what it shows us is that we don't practice our morality because there's a promise of pleasure on the back end. See, if that were the way that things worked in the Christian life, then we would serve God for what we would get out of it. So what God does is that he interrupts our acts of faith with hardships to teach us just that. He wants us to know that once we believe on Christ and then we exercise our faith, we shouldn't just expect a life of ease and bliss. And what this passage and so many others in the scriptures teach us is that faith is regularly followed by a severe trial, a test. And that test, you see Abraham's response to it in the verses that follow, starting with verse 11. So there's a famine that comes upon him. Abraham comes up with a really clever plan, doesn't he? I mean, part one is for him to flee Canaan, flee the Negev, and go to Egypt. Egypt, I don't know what you think about Egypt, but maybe you think that Egypt is a desert, and part of it certainly is, but a lot of it is lush. It's got the Nile River. It has this really stable, resilient agricultural system. So even in terms of when times of famine, quite regularly, the nations that surrounded Egypt would go to Egypt in order to sustain their life. This happens in the book of Genesis five times. Five times there's a famine and five times God's people go to Egypt. So there's nothing wrong with Abraham taking his family to Egypt, per se. But you see that something is off, not by him going to Egypt, by, but by what he doesn't do. Did you catch that? There's no mention of God in this episode. Abraham doesn't make an altar for worship when he gets to Egypt. I mean, that's what he did in Shechem and Bethel. And he should have in Egypt. I mean, Egypt is one of the nations that God wants to bless through him. But we find no worship from Abraham in Egypt. Not only do you not see worship, you don't see prayer either. He doesn't stop and consult God on how he should respond to this famine. Abraham does what so many of us do. He jumps into Captain Fix-It mode. Do you have a Captain Fix-It mode? I do. Now maybe you don't have this Captain Fix-It mode. Maybe when problems come upon you, you're paralyzed by indecisions. You stay stuck in your anxiety. You're afraid to go in the wrong direction. But for a lot of us, we go into action. That's what's natural for us. It's knee-jerk for us to take stock of our circumstances, to weigh the pros and the cons and hope for the best. And we do it all without consulting God. See, in, in many ways, if, when you're in a Captain Fix-It mode, it, it's really just functional atheism. You, you live as if God doesn't exist. You jump in the driver's seat of your car all while God may or may not even be in the car. So yes, there's no worship here in Egypt. There's no prayer here with Abraham. And this should be a clue that something's not quite right with Abraham's response to the famine. But this is just the first part of his plan. The second part is what he's going to do once he gets to Egypt. See, he's afraid that the Egyptians are going to kill him because 
His wife, Sarah, is just so beautiful. You might say, well, Marsh, I know a little bit about Genesis. I know a little bit about this story. Isn't Sarah an old woman at this point? I mean, yeah, she is 65. But their lifespans are twice as long as ours, so essentially she's in her mid-30s. Abraham knows that in order to save his neck, he's going to have to do something about it. That's what he thinks anyways. And so he claims that she is his sister and not his wife. I mean, this is half true. He does, he, she is his half-sister. But he doesn't say the whole truth. He could claim he's telling the truth, but he's really concealing a key fact, isn't he? He's concealing the fact that they're married. He could claim that he's looking out for what's best for everybody. I mean, it's not crazy for him to say that he's doing this for the good of their marriage. That he's doing this for the good of God's promise because God couldn't deliver on his promise if Abraham was to die at the hands of the Egyptians. So from one angle, his intentions seem good, don't they? But not all plans, even if they're guided by sound logic and good intentions, are necessarily pleasing to God. Here's the crazy thing. His plans were a resounding success, weren't they? I mean, he, he, he does not kill. He saves his neck. And do you see what he got in verse 16? In verse 16, he essentially gets a dowry. Because the person who had the right to give a woman away in marriage, if the father wasn't around, was the brother. So here Pharaoh is, maybe the wealthiest person in the world at the time, gives a dowry to Abraham for Sarah. He gets wealthy off this deal. It seems like the ev his evil is rewarded, doesn't it? But look at it from Sarah's perspective. I mean, her life is jeopardized here. She's just a pawn in Abraham's caper. In no place in this narrative do we hear her voice. But she bears no guilt here. No guilt for what's happened. Abraham bears it all. You see just how dark things have gotten for Abraham. I mean, he's the receptor of the great promises of God, and now he's become the greatest enemy and threat to the fulfillment of those promises. It'd be easy to say that Abraham should have just done the right thing. He should have just been our honest preacher. That's what he should have done. He should have told him that this woman was his sister and his wife and trusted God for the rest. Honesty, that's the solution. We need to look at the sin, what I would call the sin beneath the sin. In other words, why did Abraham lie? It becomes clear, you look at the text close enough, and you see that the reason that Abraham lied was his fear of man, wasn't it? I mean, he takes Pharaoh's power much more seriously than he takes God's. He's forgotten all the things God has promises, promised him. He's forgotten the I wills from earlier in the chapter. Remember all the I wills? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. The I wills. And instead of the I wills, he adopts the they wills. They will kill me. Have you ever come down with a case of the they wills? And you realize that your fear is exaggerated and reality, it's not a they will, but it's a they might. 
Do, do you realize that most of our worries have never actually happened to us? When we really examine our worries and our fear, we see what's behind them is being enslaved by the fear of man, the fear of woman, the fear of children, the fear of mankind. See, most of us, we live our whole lives based on, out of fear for other people. And for Abraham, he was afraid of losing his life. And you're not sitting here likely today afraid that you're going to lose your life because of the hands of someone else, but you fear other things from people. You fear exposure. You fear humiliation. You fear rejection. You fear ridicule. Well, that's to put it negatively. To put it positively, you desire, you, you desire to be wanted. You desire to be accepted. You desire to be needed by other people. See, here's our problem. Our problem is that we need other people more than we love other people. And what or who you need will control you. See, here's how you know you're under the control of someone else because of your fear of them. I'm going to list off a bunch. I'm drilling deep right here. You ready? One of the ways you know you fear other people too much is that you overcommit. Got any of those in here? Fran? Fran, raise your hand. That's partly my fault. <laughs> you know you fear other people because you think and feel overly responsible for them? Any of those? Classic pastor. You feel overly compelled to help others and solve their problems for them? You feel unappreciated? You feel inappropriately ashamed of who you are. You always second-guess decisions out of fear of what other people might think. You're afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes. Any of those in here? Maybe you're jealous of other people. You're controlled by something that they have and you don't. Maybe it's your body image. You're, you're addicted to getting other people or you so desire other people to be impressed by you and get compliments from, the, from them and to get attention from them when it's really not just being healthy. Maybe this happens when you don't get invited to a party or a getaway or a social function or a certain person doesn't come up to you during the greeting of peace at church. And you instantly make the meaning out of that situation that they don't like you, that they've rejected you, so you get angry and you withhold acceptance and love from them. Or you get insecure and you feel worthless. Ring a bell? See, it's a vicious cycle, is it not? I mean, why do we need someone else, perhaps even ourselves, to think that we're great in order for our life to feel like living? What should we do about it? The better question than what we should do about it is what does God do with those people who overly fear mankind? And you see what he does here with Abraham. This was the man who just verses earlier at the first half of chapter 12, you see him be this great giant of faith, right? And now he's become a very small man in verses 10 to 20. So is God going to let Abraham's failure be the last word? Is he, 
Is God going to strike Abraham down for being a fool? Well, the answer is a firm no. God isn't going to let Abraham derail his plan to redeem the world. So God steps on the scene, and he steps on the scene in the most unusual of ways, doesn't he? God sends a, a plague to Pharaoh and his house, and somehow Pharaoh traces the presence of the plague to the lie of Abraham about Sarah being his sister. And Pharaoh's outraged. He sends Abraham and Sarah out of the country immediately upon his realization. So does this reframe how you think God will deal with you when you fail your test? See, God likely hasn't and won't send you a famine in your life, but something difficult is going to be put before you. Something difficult is going to be put before you and you're going to need to act in a way that's filled with faith, but then you don't. I mean, maybe that test, maybe that trial was it you responded to pain with hatred instead of forgiveness. Maybe you responded to suffering by making plans and not consulting God. Maybe you avoided a chance to take a stand for Christ and you blended in instead. Maybe you were tested because you came into a bunch of money and you stacked it all away or you spent it all on yourself instead of giving it to the poor and to reach the lost. Or maybe, maybe your test was the opposite. Maybe you were low on money and you worked yourself to the nub without praying for God to provide in an unexpected way. Who knows? But we've all failed just like Abraham. And that's why this unusual story is here in the scriptures is so that we don't make a hero out of Abraham. We, we need to look to someone else who didn't stumble when trials came. We need to look to someone else whose faith never wavered. We need to look to someone who did not look to themselves to come up with a solution to their painful predicament, but look to God alone. We need to look to someone who was willing to ride out their suffering. And if you look around, the only person you're going to see is Jesus. You'll see him. I mean, he gets a, a, he gets a way better blessing than Abraham got. Abraham got all those I wills. You know what Jesus got at his baptism? Jesus got the ultimate words of blessing. He got the ultimate commendation when the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And you would expect from that moment on for Jesus to just live his life as one that's just pure victory, right? It's not what happens. The scene right after, what happens immediately after this in Jesus' life is that he goes into the desert for 40 days and he fasts. And when he's there, he receives three temptations from Satan. And Jesus passed every test in the wilderness. He continued to pass every test. He passed the test with the cross. I mean, at the cross, he could have called down an army of angels and he didn't. He could have gotten off the cross himself and he didn't. He could have just said a word to make the whole suffering thing stop, and he didn't. I mean, his word is pretty powerful. He, he, he could have just said a word. He, I mean, in, in the past, he had just said a word and healed the sick. He had just said a word and calmed the seas. But Jesus doesn't use his word to put an end to his suffering. Why? Because he suffered for you, brother and sister. 
because he loved you. His death was for you. I mean, listen to Romans 5.8. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me say it again. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It tells us when God loved us. When did God love you? God loved you when you had bad ideas about him. When did God love you? God loved you when you were doing repulsive things. When did God love you? God loved you when you didn't acknowledge him for who he really was. And that's why he died for you. See, when you weren't looking for God, he was looking for you. I mean, that's the message of this text. Abraham never comes to his senses in this text and says, God, will you get me out of this? God, I've acted with unbelief. Rescue me here. Abraham never does that. But God comes. And maybe this morning God has come to you. Maybe that's where you find yourself. God is interrupting you in the middle of your folly. He's found you. Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe it's for the ninth time. And I can promise you it won't be the last time. You've been sitting in your pain for a long time and God has come today and he's offered you healing and you've never asked him for it. Maybe you've been sitting in shame for all the ways you've failed God and all the ways you haven't measured up and God has come to you today and he's lifted up your head. Well, I can tell you this, brother and sister, God takes great delight in tracking down those who've been led astray. God takes great delight in Tracking down those who have gone astray themselves. And he wants to bring you back into his fold. Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is uh, the story of the Bible. Or that even when we do cry out to you, even when we do want healing even when we do want forgiveness or assurance. It's only because you have sparked that in us. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would see that your love for us is so much greater than our love for you. That your desire for us is so much greater than our desire for you. Assure us of that at this table. In Christ's name, amen.